You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 84, Germany Prepares for War, Part 7, Influences and Decisions. This week, a big thank you goes out to Paul and Stephen for choosing to support this podcast on Patreon. As a member on Patreon, they get access to ad-free versions of all of the podcast episodes, plus special member-only episodes released roughly once a month. Head on over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members to find out more. One of the challenges that has to be faced when discussing any nation's military evolution at really any point in modern history, including during the 1930s, is that there were always a variety of inputs that influenced their decisions and actions. These could have been internal factors, external events, geography, politics, industry. There's a whole list of different things that can cause nations and military leaders to make different choices. All of these inputs can then affect how things happen. Like, for example, how the German army was planning to wage war during the 1930s. I thought an interesting way to approach this problem for this episode would be to spend a good chunk of time discussing some of the inputs that would feed into how Germany would decide how to implement their own mechanization, motorization, and how to adapt for future wars. Along the way, we will also discuss some of the conclusions that other nations came to about the best way to wage modern war, which means we will touch briefly on the Soviet Union doctrine at this time and the French tank designs. What we will not be really discussing in this episode is a detailed description of how Germany planned to use its tanks and other military assets at a tactical level. I think a conversation on those items is best left until our episodes on the Polish campaign, where we can actually discuss them in action, as sort of within context. As with every conversation about German armored doctrine, or any armored doctrine during the Second World War, we have to start with 1920s Britain. This may seem like an odd place to start this episode, but Britain during the 1920s was one of the most forward-facing militaries when it came to armor theory, with armored theorists like J.F.C. Fuller and Liddell Hart playing an important role in shaping how the British Army planned to use armor and their armor forces. Fuller, in particular, would be a strong advocate for strong, concentrated armored forces, and during the 1920s, there would be exercises staged by the British Army to put those ideas to the test. One of these would involve the experimental mechanized force 
which was assembled during 1927 as part of the largest test of armored units up to that point in history. The experimental mechanized force was an amalgamation of almost all of the mechanized and motorized assets available to the British Army at that point. By pooling everything together, they were able to work with larger formations and experience the issues that large formations caused, especially around communication and supply. While this allowed the British to learn some of the lessons of mechanized war earlier than anybody else, they would kind of squander this lead during the 1930s. There would be large budget cuts due to the Depression, and then those with different views on the future of combat would gain the ascendancy on the other side of those cuts. Also, just in general, the British Army, from a budgetary perspective, was pretty low on the priorities list during the 1930s, which caused problems that we will almost certainly talk about here in a few episodes. This prevented the British Army from forming the kind of coherent structure and doctrine around the use of armored forces that would happen in other armies during the 1930s. The reason that this episode starts by talking about the British is because they were widely read among other militaries in Europe. For example, a person we will discuss in some detail here in a few minutes, Heinz Guderian, was well-versed in both the exercises that were done and the lessons that were learned from them. Learning from external resources was critical for the German military in particular during the 1920s and early 1930s because they simply did not have the men or the resources to do the tests themselves. The Reichswehr, which was the name of the German army, was extremely limited in its manpower and was completely forbidden from having armored vehicles. Along with influencing German thought because they couldn't do the exercises themselves, the British exercises would also go on to influence Soviet, Czech, and French military theorists during this same period, simply because their nations were not doing exercises on the same scale. There were similar instances of military theorists having a real influence outside of their own nations during this period. For example, Giulio Duhay, an Italian, would be an important influence on many air power theorists, especially those that threw their full support behind strategic bombing as the best way to win a future war. The similarities in both cases is that Fuller and Duhay would both be strong advocates for new technology, believing that the secret to preventing another attritional war, like 1914-1918, lay in the new capabilities of those technologies. To quote Duhay, quote, Victory smiles upon those who anticipate the changes in the character of war, not upon those who wait to adapt themselves after the changes occur. Those who are ready first will not only win quickly, but will win with the fewest sacrifices and the minimum expenditure of means. End quote. They would come to the same conclusion for their chosen piece of technology, Duhay the strategic bomber and Fuller the tank, that the only correct answer was absolute commitment to these new tools. In both cases, they would represent the most extreme views on these items, and that would be part of why they would be so influential. While foreign writers and theorists would be one important input into German thinking, another would be the military actions that would take place around the world in the mid and late 1930s. We have discussed some of the most important of these on the podcast already, with the Italian invasion of Ethiopia during the Abyssinian War and the Spanish Civil War. The Italians would invade Ethiopia in 1935 with a total force of over 100,000 men, and they would try to advance in two different columns across the African nation, with one approaching from the north and another from the south. 
In both cases, the advances would come in far below expectations, with the advance from the north having supply issues due to infrastructural challenges. The roads in the area simply were not able to handle the requirements of supporting the Italian drive. In the south, there were similar concerns, with supply challenges causing the Italian commander to be very cautious and slow with his advance. General Badoglio would eventually take command and move things forward, but there were many problems that would still be faced by the Italians, problems that would be a feature of almost every campaign in Africa over the next decade. The main concern was one of supplies, with the supply lines for some Italian units reaching 4,000 kilometers back to Italy. Then, as supplies got closer to the front, they had to contend with local roads that were underdeveloped and possibly, you know, in a hostile environment. Even with some of these challenges, Italian experiences in Africa were analyzed by many other nations because it was the first campaign that featured relatively modern and large motorized and mechanized forces that were in a real combat situation. The Italian armor was largely based around the CV-33 tankette, which had two machine guns for armament, but with its small size, even with its small size, it was still part of a mechanized force. There was also some really unique operations, like a flanking run by an Eritrean corps that was supplied by Italian airdrops. Eventually, they would receive over 110 tons of supplies as they moved 320 kilometers. The lessons that were taken from these events varied. On the air power side of things, the analysis was often quite positive because Italian air efforts seemed to have been an important factor in Italian victory. On the usage of Italian armor assets, there were some clear challenges, with supplies being problematic and terrain being less than conducive to what the Italians were trying to do. Then, during the Spanish Civil War, there were more opportunities for new military equipment to be tested in the field. We talked about this a bit last episode with the Luftwaffe and its latest generation of fighter and bombers, but German and Soviet tanks of the latest designs would also meet on the battlefields of Spain. And much like in the early stages of the air battle, the German weapons did not match up very well against the Soviet equipment that they would face. The best example would be the Soviet T-26 tank, which proved to be just flat out better than the Panzer I, due in large part to its larger gun. The Panzer I was always a stopgap in the Germans' arsenal, but such clear deficiencies still caused concern and hastened the end of the machine gun-armed light tank. In all cases, not just in Spain and Ethiopia, but for almost every foreign military campaign, there would be a tendency by analysts to pull the lessons that they wanted to from each action. Those in favor of tanks and trying to explain why they were not as impactful as they could have been in Spain and Ethiopia would point to terrain, organization, training, and supplies as mitigating factors that prevented tanks from being the war-winning tools that they believed they could be. Claims would be made that for the German military, things would of course be different. Meanwhile, those on the other side of the armor debates would trumpet these campaigns as important examples of why a narrow focus on large tank formations was going to set the military for disaster. This was one of the major reasons you have to be careful about how you think about the influence that these events had on the German military. There was a lot of cherry-picking going on, where instead of giving honest analysis, people would just pick and choose the examples that fit their pre-existing ideas. On the armor side of the equation, the general German perspective was that events in Spain should be generally discarded due to the mitigating factors of terrain, numbers, tactics, and training. 
So those are some examples of foreign theorists and conflicts and how they could shape decisions that were being made. But now let's move on to some of the actions of other nations as they were taking them in the 1930s or they might take in the future. And for Germany, one of the most important things for any future war was the large amount of money that the French were spending on the Maginot Line. By the late 1930s, the Maginot Line was mostly complete, at least in its original areas, although there were expansions being built in the north, and what would be built was generally quite impressive. The strongest ouvrages, or forts, made for some pretty impressive defensive structures. Looking at just one example, the Ouvrage de Fermont near Longvie, we see a fortification with three eastward-facing guns in the main fortifications, those being 75mm artillery pieces. Then it was surrounded by six separate and smaller fortifications that were manned by infantry, each of which had its own artillery, machine guns, and other defensive positions. This created a serious challenge for any attacking unit, as the artillery provided ranged firepower that was protected by the machine guns, infantry, and mounted grenade launchers. The ouvrages, as opposed to the improvised defenses that could be created during a war, were also perfectly placed to maximize their strengths, particularly around the field of fire, which for Fermont was around 20 kilometers in diameter. If the Germans were to attack into France, dealing with this and other fortifications would be a serious problem, unless they were able to find a way around, which the French planned to counter with its own field forces, a setup we discussed in some detail back in episode 61. At the same time that the Maginot Line was being built to help defend France, Germany was doing basically exactly the same thing on its western frontier. In the 1920s, the German army had to sort of contend with a problem, and it was a problem that was actually pretty similar to what the French were going through. They were confronted with the problem of wanting to prepare for the needs of national defense, while at the same time laboring under an intense restrictions that had been placed upon them by the Treaty of Versailles, which limited active military personnel to just 100,000. In the same way that the French hoped to use the Maginot Line to make up for demographic issues and to allow time for mobilization, the Germans hoped to do the same to make up for their lack of trained soldiers. The most famous of these positions would be the West Wall series of defenses, which were designed to be a shield that would allow the bulk of the German army to be used in the east. There were also fixed fortifications built on Germany's eastern border, with 500 blockhouses built in Pomerania, for example, to allow for better use of available manpower. The goal of all of these positions was not to provide indefinite defense, but simply to slow the enemy attack. Building up to a defensible level was more challenging in the east than it was in the west, even with all those blockhouses, because of the general terrain on Germany's eastern border. This was very different in the West, where it was much more conducive to, kind, to the kind of defense that Germany wanted to mount. This became less of a concern, though, in the 1930s, as the focus of German military efforts clearly shifted eastward, with Hitler pushing for expansion in the East as the first priority. Resources were instead poured into the West Wall, and it would be a major area of German focus in both manpower and other resources in the years before the war, and it would see a lot of work during the German work creation programs that would happen after 1933. By the summer of 1939, the fortifications on the French border were impressive, 11,000 blockhouses complete with countless other obstacles. 
This resulted in the interesting situation where both sides of the Franco-German border were festooned with defensive fortifications to prevent the other from launching a rapid attack at the beginning of hostilities, even though neither side planned to actually launch such a campaign. The West Wall was still seen as critical to German defense because it would allow for the, a far greater percentage of Germany's forces to be focused elsewhere, but then, you know, we got to confront the question of how they would organize those forces and what they would do with them. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. During the last episode on the Luftwaffe, I made reference to the cooperation between the Soviet Union and Germany in the areas of aviation and in tank development. For tank development, one of the primary outcomes was the tank school at Kazan outside of Moscow. The school would open in July 1927 and was primarily seen from the German side as a way to test out their ideas for tank design and usage at a time when the Versailles Treaty prevented such activities from occurring in Germany. The Soviets hoped to gain some engineering and manufacturing experience from this process as well, because all the tank construction would be done in factories in the Soviet Union. The period of heaviest use for the school would be between 1929 and 1933, although during that time the Kazan school would be more or less important to each nation at various points along the timeline. While it was beneficial to both sides, the Germans and Russians had different views on the ultimate purpose of the school. The Germans wanted to focus the school on training a small group of officers that could then take the things that they learned back to Germany when rearmament began. Meanwhile, the Soviets wanted to begin training large numbers of soldiers at the school to increase the combat capabilities of the Red Army immediately. This very fundamental disagreement would cause some issues along the way, but it was not the only area where the two militaries would diverge in their views. Another example would be in tank design. 
The German designers favored small, light, and cheaply produced designs, while the Russians were already moving to larger and heavier models, believing that the German designs were too vulnerable to enemy fire. These differing viewpoints would continue until the school was shut down in 1933, by which point it was clear that the two militaries had substantially diverged on many topics. The Soviets would, for most of the 1930s, chase their ideas of the deep battle, which was believed to be the best way to use large numbers of units to decisively defeat an enemy army in the field. It required large-scale unit cooperation and coordination, which would allow for an offensive into enemy territory that would push towards final victory. There was just one problem. The Soviets never really got it to work in the 1930s. They knew what they wanted to do, attack the enemy on a wide front and then develop that attack into deep penetration, which would then prevent any possible solidification of enemy defenses, which was such a problem during the First World War. It all worked on paper and in theory, and even in some exercises. But whenever the performance was put under any scrutiny or was forced to deal with real resistance, things quickly fell apart. The continued problems with deep battle and the political shakeup that would occur during the purges would then cause a large shift in the structure of Soviet armor resources. Instead of large armored units, the Red Army would move further back into its previous emphasis on infantry and artillery, with tank resources redistributed and subsumed by the infantry. While this was happening in the Soviet Union during the late 1930s, there were similar conversations occurring in Germany, with some military officers favoring the concentrated approach, while others were pushing for tanks to be used in close conjunction with the infantry. This brings us to one Heinz Guderian. Guderian would begin his military career as a signals officer, but he would rise up the ranks until he was promoted to the Chief of Staff of the Motorized Forces Command, which was created in 1934. In that position, Guderian was serving under General Oswald Lutz, who supported Guderian's belief that the best way to utilize armored resources for the German army was to concentrate all available armor within its own units, which would not be subordinated to any others. In 1936, Lutz would ask Guderian to produce a book detailing his views on tanks as a way of raising awareness, both within the military and outside of military circles. This book would eventually be given the title Achtung Panzer, and is something that people still read today. The core feature of all of Guderian's arguments were around armor concentration. No German officer of any rank would have denied that the tank was an important new tool that needed to be developed and then used effectively. The major point of disagreement was around how it should be incorporated into existing force structures, e either as large units capable of independent action, or as smaller units that would work in close support of the infantry. Guderian wanted concentrated tank units to be the focal point of the army, working with other arms in close support, like infantry and aviation assets, but only when those tools were subservient to the armor. Guderian would never really waver from this belief, even if he did not have all the answers to the problems that it would have caused. The most important of these was how the infantry was going to work with the tank units. Infantry units that were not motorized would be constantly left behind by Guderian's planned armored forces, and even motorized infantry presented some problems around coordination. These problems were not unknown to Guderian. He simply believed that they would eventually be solved, or at least mitigated enough to make the armored spearheads very effective. It's worth mentioning that Guderian was not alone in pushing for this kind of concentration, although he is almost certainly the most well-known. 
There were other officers like Ernst Volkheim, Alfred von Walhard Bockelberg, Otto von Stupnagel, and Oswald Lutz that all contributed to German armor theory, even if they are less well-known. Guderian was, uh, along with many of his other talents, very skilled at self-marketing, which would carry him through the war and, and after. Setting in Sudarian and other armored concentrationists was the Army Chief of Staff Ludwig Beck. Beck, along with all of the other officers that agreed with him, did not think that tanks were in any way bad. They still wanted as many of them as possible. However, Beck believed that the best way to use them would be to distribute them more evenly among the entire German army. So instead of concentrating the motorized and mechanized resources that the German army did have within just a small number of armored divisions, those resources should instead be spread out to raise the mobility and effectiveness of all of the army's divisions and to provide each infantry division with some level of mobile striking power. From the perspective of the concentrationists, uh, Beck's plans would disperse available resources too much, robbing the available armor of the impact that it could have if grouped together. From Beck's perspective, to do anything other than spread out the armor would simply leave the German army with a few highly mobile divisions, and then a whole bunch of less mobile infantry divisions that would not be able to support them. In an ideal world, Germany would of course build enough vehicles to serve both purposes, uh, but there were limits to how many tanks could be built in the 1930s. These disagreements would be tested during exercises. There were attempts during the Reichswehr years to do exercises that tried to replicate the presence of tanks, where motor vehicles were used in many cases, but it was only after roughly October 1935 and the final renunciation of the Versailles limitations that anything approaching real exercises that involved armored resources could take place. Yearly exercises were often held in September, with the ones in 1936 involving 50,000 men from a variety of different units. They would rapidly increase in size, up to 160,000 men in 1937. This allowed all of the various groups within the Wehrmacht to work together, with the new panzer divisions working with aircraft, motorized infantry units, and even paratroopers. The three armored divisions that were under Lutz's command were initially equipped with Panzer I tanks, although this quickly started to be supplanted by the Panzer II. While the Panzer divisions generally did quite well during these exercises, they were still real learning experiences, especially around coordination and communication, which was always very challenging. The most important outcome for later years, though, was that the Panzer Division concept seemed to have some very clear strengths, and so they would be refined and expanded. This expansion would be continually hampered, as so many other expansion plans during this time would be, by production problems. This was during the four-year plans, when every area of armament production seemed to be falling behind. This was particularly problematic in the areas of tank production due to the massive changes in the design and overall performance of newer models. The Panzer divisions did not just need tanks, but tanks that were of the latest and greatest variety. They would never really receive what they hoped, and by the start of the war, they had not received about a third of their desired Panzer III's, and they were short by 80% of the Panzer IV's that they had expected to receive by October 1939. Outside of the armor units, the problems were even worse, and creating motorized infantry units was hopelessly behind schedule. These problems, along with all of the others that would be faced when going to war, would not be catastrophic in Poland or France. Mistakes made by their enemies, or just sheer numbers, would allow for victory. 
But those victories also ended up papering over some very real shortcomings of German armor and supply units that would become incredibly apparent in Russia. That brings us to a discussion of a term, the term, when discussing German tactics before the Second World War, Blitzkrieg. The interwar definition of the word Blitzkrieg had its roots in military concepts that dated back to after the First World War. During that time, with the rise of air power and its ability to bomb enemy targets a great distance from the battlefield, the idea of a quick knockout blow of an enemy seemed to be a concept that was possible. This idea was fostered by strategic bombing advocates as a great benefit of investing in strategic bombers, that a war could be over quickly, very quickly, almost before it even really started. And then this caused all kinds of concerns among the populations and cities that would have been the targets of those bombing raids. So how do we get from strategic bombing to German actions in Poland? Well, that is mostly thanks to journalists who were covering the fighting. They used it to describe the kind of actions that the German military was taking and the coordination between the ground forces of the Heer and the aviation resources of the Luftwaffe. It was not and would never be some kind of official doctrinal concept of the German military. Dating back to the early 1930s, the official doctrine of the German army recognized that close cooperation with the Luftwaffe was important and would provide a much greater chance of success. Then, during the course of the decade, they developed and refined this cooperation. But then, when the word Blitzkrieg was attached to the actions in Poland, Nazi propaganda grabbed onto the idea and sort of just ran with it. Giving the actions of the German military a name like Blitzkrieg made it easier to glorify and kind of classify and made it easier for everybody to understand. And it made it seem like they were doing something amazing. And if you looked at German propaganda, they also appeared to be unstoppable. So why would we care about what the Germans did or did not call their military doctrine at the start of the war? Well, first of all, it's, it's nice just for the sake of accuracy. But more importantly, any time a term or idea is created, amplified, or popularized by the propaganda organizations inside a nation, it's important to give it some thought. In the case of Blitzkrieg, it still carries with it like a positive connotation, a positive feeling, like the Germans were onto something and they were in some ways doing things better than anybody else. That may have been the case, and I think there were absolutely militaries that were either behind the curve or had made incorrect choices that the Germans did not make. But in many cases, like in Poland, the preparations made by the German military and how they prepared for war and how they planned to fight it, while important, was probably not something that really made a difference. It can be challenging to evaluate the preparations of the German military properly, based on the crushing successes that they would have in the first 18 months of the war. When, for many of those successes, the greatest strength of the Wehrmacht was that they were really good at taking advantage of their enemy's mistakes. This is exemplified perfectly in the Polish campaign, where to quote Field Marshal Erich von Manstein, quote, Poland's defeat was the inevitable outcome of the Warsaw's government's illusions about the actions its allies would take, as well as its overestimation of the Polish army's ability to offer lengthy resistance, end quote. This would be a common refrain among Germany's enemies early in the war. Sure, the Germans were doing a good job and they planned out what they were going to do before the war and they were using their panzer divisions and they were using combined armed tactics between the Luftwaffe and the Heer infantry and armored divisions. But at the end of the day, in a lot of cases, 
They were just taking advantage of all the weakness that was around them. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next time for the eighth part of our series on Germany, where we will discuss the Kristallnacht or the Night of Broken Glass.